<laughs> if you can dodge a ruck, you can dodge an arrow. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. In the history of the Indian Wars in Texas, two remarkable battles were fought in the dusty panhandle trading post of Adobe Walls. The first was the last great moment of glory for a legendary frontier figure. The second was the first battle in a war that finally saw the end of the Comanche presence in Texas. This week we present part one of the two battles of Adobe Walls. But first, who is your favorite Texas Ranger? And by that I mean the baseball team. Well, they've had a lot of good players through the years, um, I guess. I mean, I'm an Astros fan, so I don't pay too close attention to the Rangers. But I really like Ron Washington. Uh, When they were doing well and he was leading the team, uh, every time they did something good, he'd do his little dance, and uh, that was a lot of fun to watch. So that's my pick. Mm, Well, I'll go ahead and jump in and say, like, you know, historical and Texan, Nolan Ryan. Enough said. Well, I'm going to go with his favorite catcher, Pudge Rodriguez. Yvonne Pudge Rodriguez. I do like Pudge. Yep. If you travel an hour north of Amarillo to the town of Pringle, and then cut out through a series of farm-to-market and country roads amid the ranches and farms east of town towards the Canadian River, you'll eventually find yourself on County Road 23, and you just might run across the ruins of the old ghost town known as Adobe Walls. There's not much there, But there is a historical marker and some old archaeological digs which tell a remarkable story about this nothing spot of land in the middle of nowhere. There is little evidence of the two battles that were fought here, one in 1864 and one ten years later, which changed the history of Texas. Adobe Walls was founded around 1843 by the Bent St. Varane and Company trading firm in order to trade with the Comanche and Kiowa who lived in the area. This company hoped to repeat the success that they'd had with their original fort, Bent's Fort, which they'd built on the old Santa Fe Trail up in Colorado in 1833. The Comanche and the Kiowa avoided Bent's Fort because their enemies, such as the Cheyenne and Arapaho, lived in that area. Now, for nearly a decade, Bent's Fort was the only American settlement in what was then the far western frontier of the United States. The new satellite post that they built in the Texas Panhandle was sited on a stream that they called Bent's Creek near the Canadian River. Technically, the land was part of the Republic of Texas, but really it was so deep in Comancheria, nobody in Texas could reasonably make any claims to that land. The com- you know, except the Comanche. The company's traders initially operated from teepees and later built log structures. Sometime after September 1845, the chief partners in the firm, William Bent and Saron St. Vrain, arrived with Mexican adobe makers to build a more permanent structure, probably similar to their post up in Colorado. The new fort was 80 feet square with 9-foot walls and only one entrance, and they called it Fort Adobe. Obviously, the Bent Company were creative namers. of. Yeah, this. they had another fort name. Fort St. Vrain. So Fort Bent, Fort St. <laughs> Vrain, Fort Adobe. Yeah. They Well, 
That's you know to be to, <laughs> yeah. But to be fair, to be fair, if this was a modern thing, um, you can very much count on there being you know a Fort Coca Cola and a <laughs> you know a Fort Pepsi. Mm-hmm. You know they they would uh, they would certainly name their their settlements. Aetna after Healthcare their, presents themselves. the Adobe the Adobe Dome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. How about they call it Fort Fort? <laughs> Fort yeah, Fort Fort. Fort. <laughs> That's the Swedish outpost. Operations at Fort Adobe were sporadic at best, and the Bent Company suffered from considerable hardship in the 1840s. After the Mexican-American War and the gold rush to California that followed, American settlers and travelers made their way to and through the plains in increasing numbers, only agitating the native peoples that lived there. By 1848, the Comanche were completely hostile to outsiders, and Bent withdrew operations from the post. In 1849, he sent famous mountain man, guide, and hunter, Christopher Kit Carson, who had worked for him on and off since 1841, back to the post to reopen it when tensions settled with the Comanche. Later that year, a great cholera epidemic struck the South Plains, forcing Bent to close operations south of the Platte River. Bent gave up on Fort Adobe that year when part of his livestock herd was slaughtered by local Indians, and he blew up the fort and never returned. The ruins of the fort became a landmark and a shelter for the local tribes and the few traders who were willing to venture this deep into Comancheria. From that point on, though, the only people who would trade with the Comanche in the panhandle of Texas were the Comancheros, natives of north and central New Mexico, who had been trading with the Plain tribes since the days of the Spanish colonies. The secession of Texas from the Union removed federal troops from the frontier line, and with a large portion of its male population joining the Confederate Army, this left the western frontier of Texas virtually defenseless. This allowed Comanche, Arapaho, and Apache raiders free access to livestock grazing in the cross timbers and hill country of central west Texas. Comancheros profited from this stock, which they frequently traded to army posts, government Indian reservations, and ranchers for guns, ammunition, and whiskey, which they then traded to the Indians. This allowed the Comanche to grow stronger and made them bolder without attacking other targets, including the vital Santa Fe wagon trail to the north. By 1864, the Union military was large and efficient enough and sufficiently in control of operations in the main theaters of the Civil War in the eastern United States to be able to take stronger action against the Plains Indian tribes. General James Carleton was commander of the New Mexico Military District and had earlier defeated an attempt by Texas troops to take control of southern Arizona and later had crushed an uprising by the Navajo. That year, he ordered his subordinate, Kit Carson, now a colonel in the Union Army, to lead an expedition north of the Canadian River in Texas to punish the Kiowa, Comanche, and Plains Apache who were attacking wagon trains and settlers traveling along the Santa Fe Trail. Carlton had harsh instructions for Carson. Quote, All Indian men of that tribe are to be killed whenever and wherever you can find them. If the Indians send in a flag of truce, say to the bearer that you have been sent to punish them for their treachery and their crimes, that you have no power to make peace, that you are there to kill them wherever you can find them. That's a person who doesn't like the Indians, I don't think. Yeah. Kit Carson was one of the more unique figures in American history. He left his Missouri home in 1825 at the age of 16 to become a mountain man and trapper in the West. He'd just been apprenticed to a saddler, and he found the business not to his taste. Over the next 20 years, he lived a frontier life in every way. 
He traveled the Santa Fe Trail, explored the Rockies, trapped beavers, went to California and back, worked as a miner in New Mexico, befriended legendary mountain man Jim Bridger, and both fought and lived with the Indians. Carson's first two wives were both Native Americans, and his third wife was a 14-year-old New Mexican girl from a good family from Taos, and their marriage lasted 25 years and produced eight children. By the 1840s, he was a legend along the frontier, but greater fame was yet to come. In 1842, Carson befriended U.S. Army officer John C. Fremont and became Fremont's guide in each of his three expeditions. The third expedition in 1845 to California played a pivotal role in the Bear Flag Revolt when American settlers in California declared independence from Mexico. Carson took the news of the revolt to the American government. In 1848, Carson brought back news of the gold strike in California, which set off the California Gold Rush. By this time, the first of many dime novels about the adventures of Kit Carson began to appear in the Eastern press, sparking the imaginations of the American public in much the same way that Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie did a decade earlier. These stories were not just popular in the United States, but were published in French, German, Portuguese, Gujarati, Hindi, Singhalese, Arabic, and even Japanese. By the 1850s, he was one of the most famous men in America, but had largely settled down to live a quiet family life in New Mexico, serving as an Indian agent there. When the Civil War began, Carson volunteered to serve in the Union Army, eventually rising to the rank of colonel under General Carleton. He fought against Confederate invasions of New Mexico and Arizona, and also in the campaigns against the Apache and Navajo. By 1864, he was worn out and tired, and had tried to resign the year before due to a previous injury. Still, Carleton trusted him to take on the task of punishing the Comanche on the Texas Plains. On November 10, 1864, Carleton ordered him to take around 300 men, as well as 75 UT and Apache scouts, to find and attack the Comanche within their stronghold territory. He also brought with him two mountain howitzers, which are short-range cannon that could be broken down and hauled on mules. Carson decided to march first to Adobe Wells, which he was familiar with from his employment by the Bent Company more than 20 years earlier. He knew that the Comanche and Kiowa often camped near the ruins and hoped to use them as cover should they be attacked. An early snowstorm caused slow progress, but on November 24, 1864, his force located a Kiowa village west of Adobe Walls. That same afternoon, the Indian scouts reported that they had found the trail of a large Indian village. The next morning, Carson's troops attacked and destroyed the village, but unfortunately, it also alerted the nearby tribes to his presence. The Kiowa chief, Dohassan, sent warning along to allied Comanche bands who quickly organized a force of over 1,500 warriors to attack Carson and his men. Kit Carson and his men reached Adobe Walls and dug in, preparing to face the onslaught. Dohassan, assisted by Comanche chiefs Satank, Gipago, and Satana, led the Kiowa in the first attack. The Kiowa, Plains Apache, and Comanche warriors repeatedly and fiercely attacked Carson's position. Satana replied to Carson's bugler with his own bugle calls to confuse the soldiers. Carson succeeded in repelling the attacks only through the use of supporting fire from the twin howitzers, which were loaded with explosive shells, as well as canister shot, turning them into essentially giant shotguns. The shells from the howitzers caused the Comanche and Kiowa to back off in their attack, but they soon returned, in even greater numbers, and renewed the fighting. 
After around six hours of fighting, Carson finally decided to withdraw his heavily outnumbered force from the battlefield. He covered his retreat by burning the nearby Kiowa village as well as setting a huge grass fire. There were continued skirmishes the next day, but Carson wisely decided he was overmatched and he withdrew back to New Mexico. The casualties were remarkably light for such a heated engagement. Carson's force only suffered 6 dead and 25 wounded, while the Comanche and Kiowa may have had around 60 killed and wounded. In the end, both sides claimed victory, of course. Carson had marched into Indian territory, burned a village, and held off the main enemy force with minimal losses. General Carlton wrote to Carson, quote, This brilliant affair adds another green leaf to the laurel with which you have so nobly won in the service of your country. The oral history of the Kiowa and Comanche marked the battle as a time when they repelled Kit Carson, who was well known to the natives of the South Plains. Carson himself, despite not having a smashing victory, may be regarded as having avoided a dramatic defeat. He retreated before a superior enemy, sound military tactics which George Custer failed to follow a decade later against the Sioux. For Carson himself, this was to be his last great public adventure. The rest of the war was quiet for him, and he earned a promotion to general. After the war, he was involved in ranching, and he died a month after his beloved wife Josepha died in childbirth in 1868. His last words were, Goodbye, friends. Adios, compadres. Still, this wasn't the end for Adobe Walls. A decade later, the Indian tribes of the South Plains would finally unite to resist the relentless campaign by buffalo hunters to destroy their way of life. Another remarkable battle would be fought at Adobe Walls, which would set into motion the final destruction of the power of the Comanche in Texas. But more on that next week. Yeah, this is interesting to me, um, mostly because it doesn't directly involve Mm -hmm. Texan forces, I guess. You know, most of the stuff we talk about, um, you know, involves something inherent within Texas borders. But, uh, you know, this is, you know, obviously an outside force, the United States, coming into Texas at a time when they were. So it's, you know, the Union forces coming into Texas. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting because it was a different perspective than we usually talk about. Well, what what I was going to make the point is, is that. I was going to make the point that we're dangerously close to what I like to call the 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 uh, the, the neutral danger zone, that which is to say, I'm getting <laughs> awfully close to the border of Texas here. This is very close to Oklahoma slash New Mexico. Yeah. Um, yeah. This this is a but what a neat little place. This little out of the where out of nowhere place is burned down um, fort. Mm-hmm that became the site of such an important battle. Yeah, I, I think it speaks to the condition that Texas was in, both in, eight, in the 1840s and in the, in, during the Civil War, in that in the 1840s, a company based out of the United States was able to cross over the, the border into the Texas Panhandle and set up a little, little fort and a trading post and operate and conduct their business. Uh, and the Republic of Texas had nothing to do with it, nothing to say about it, and could say nothing about it because, really, as you pointed out, Scott, it's the Comanche's land. Um, and then during the Civil War, the Union Army, yeah. you know, the Union was so powerful by the the end of the Civil War that they could pretty much go wherever they they wanted to. And the Confederacy, you know, the Texans take a lot of pride in well, they never conquered Texas or they never successfully invaded Texas during the Civil War. But here's an example of well, we went into you know 
for a punitive expedition against the Comanche Indian within the borders of the, the Confederacy. And and the Confederate military had nothing to do with it. So it's it's just interesting to me that, like, it, it's the absence of Texas, really, that, that is more spoken to in these stories than than the presence. Well, Kit Carson is such a recognizable yeah. figure yeah. from history. Played by a notable Texan in a TV series back, a uh, miniseries in the 1980s, and it was the it was a miniseries about John Fremont starring, of course, Richard Chamberlain. But Kit Carson was played by Rip Torn. Mm. <laughs> there you go. Rip Torn. So, this is damn exciting <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, he was great. He was way too old to play the character, but still... It was it was a great miniseries. I still remember it to this day. And it, but he was he was he was definitely Kit Carson. Hey, I'm Kit Carson. I'm I'm scruff. I'm gruffy. Mm. <laughs> if you can dodge a rock, you can dodge an arrow. So the interesting thing to me also is that there's just there's you know we'll talk about this more next episode. But there you know I went on Google Maps to find this where this you know Adobe Walls is, and it it really is there's nothing there, um, and as a matter of fact, like if you look at the maps, like the county roads that you got to go down, they they don't actually. You have to go there and then go back if you want to go there. You can't really go through Adobe Walls. It's it's like you got to go there and then turn around and backtrack to get back to civilization. So, um, but so there's no there's no Adobe Walls fort still. But if you really did want to see what this fort was like, you could go to Colorado to the the recreated uh, the the recreation of the Bent's Fort, which they believe is very similar in in condition and how it looks. So we'll put a link on there if you want to see pictures of Bent's Fort, and you can get a kind of a picture of how the Adobe Walls Fort down in uh, uh, Fort Adobe looked down in, in Texas. So I, I like the idea, in theory, of like, let's build a shotgun the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> they like, can I mean, be carried on a mule. That seems like... Maybe carried on a mule. Okay, so it's yeah. maybe not as big as a beetle. I, I think problem is, as you say howitzer, and I think of the, right. the World War II models that they towed behind <laughs> jeeps. But, but still, it's a large, yeah. movable yeah. cannon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Here's a here's a historical question for you guys, then. So, what did Kit Carson do right that later yeah. Custer would do wrong? Because you look at it, and it's very uh-huh. similar on paper in terms of the engagement. Um, the overwhelming numbers and even the the reputation and hubris of these two men. Well, I mean, George Custer did graduate last in his class at West Point for a reason, um, mm. but uh, he, he had, had a, a great fine, mustache, fine mustache. But yeah, I mean, he 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 faced <laughs> a you know he he didn't retreat before a superior enemy, and that's I mean Napoleon knew that you. you yeah, you, you fought your battles where you could fight them, and then you, you know, if you had to re- withdraw, you withdrew, and that's what Carson did: is he maintained his force and withdrew in good order, and you know, he 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 did what he set out to do, but not you know completely didn't completely destroy the Comanche, but you know, he it was a punitive expedition, and they did that. But Custer, you know, Custer did not. He 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 stayed fighting against overwhelming odds, and he died. So. I think that's the, that's the that's the key difference of what Carson and Custer did is one of them died and the other one didn't. Oh well, there you go. That's <laughs> well. I just I thought, yeah. thought there might be something more to it. Well, it just, it's, it's funny because yeah. well, it's yeah. like oh, it's, this guy's smart and yeah, this guy's clever. It's amazing to me that a person who was uneducated 
uh, a self-made man knew had a sounder grasp on military tactics than a West Point graduate. So, oh well, shout out to our friends from Missouri. We're glad you sent yeah. Kit Carson away, uh, and also howdy to our friends <laughs> in California, because you know he's a big part yeah. of your history too. But today, we're yeah, talking it's pretty about amazing Texas. the things that he did. I mean, yeah, he was part of that, and then he brought back news. He set off the gold rush. Like, <laughs> I'm amazed that anybody can ride a horse from the from Washington D.C. to California and back again, <laughs> multiple times. Yeah, multiple. Times. Adios, compadres. Yeah, great. Yeah. What a great epitaph. <laughs> Better than the one I had thought of. Um, <laughs> That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I am Scotticus. And if you'd like to support the show financially, go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast, and there you can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We know you love this show. We know you love Texas. So please, please, please tell everyone you know to listen to Come and Take It, the authoritative history Texas podcast, and get yourself to iTunes and leave a review because it helps us to find new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas... Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.